Jesus and the disciples and the crowd around him were on the way to Jerusalem. Long before he got to Jerusalem, he said to his twelve disciples, he took them aside. He wanted them to understand that uh, what was going to happen would be fulfilling what the Old Testament had said about him. He said, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. They're going to mock and assault and beat me, and then I will be crucified. On the third day, I will rise again. And the disciples heard him, and they didn't understand what he was talking about. So they went on their way towards Jerusalem. They came to a place called Jericho, and this was the time that he healed the blind man called Bartimaeus. He encountered Zacchaeus, if you remember that story. He told a parable about people who had rejected their king. And then Luke says, he went on ahead to Jerusalem. And the Gospel of Mark makes exactly the same point. It wasn't like how he might have progressed in a crowd. If you can imagine how a crowd goes along, it's rather an amorphous body of people and perhaps Jesus somewhere in the middle walking along. It wasn't like this this time. Jesus was going on ahead. He was leading the way. He was determined to go. Possibly there was even a sense of urgency about his going. They approached uh, two little villages just outside Jerusalem, Bethany and Bethphage, and uh, he sends two disciples ahead to get a donkey, like we've just read. The disciples then put their coats on the donkey, Jesus uh, mounts it, and then he begins his trek down the mountainside, down the Mount of Olives, across the valley, and into the city of Jerusalem. There were people that had come with him as they were going along from Jericho. There were a lot of people going the same way for the Passover. In fact, uh, all males within 20 miles of Jerusalem were expected to be present at the Passover feast. And uh, he was known around Bethany, of course, because he had already healed Lazarus. So there were a lot of people around. And as he goes along, they begin to put their coats on the ground in front of him. They begin to get excited. They begin to shout And they quote from one of the Old Testament Psalms, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God is at peace with the human race. Glory in the highest. I know you can imagine the excitement of the time. They'd witnessed, those people who had witnessed the raising of Lazarus came out from Jerusalem because they'd heard about him. They heard he was coming and they come to meet him as well. So the crowd was large, and the whole outskirts of Jerusalem at this time would have been really crowded for the Passover celebration. Altogether, it's reckoned there would have been hundreds of thousands of people squeezed into Jerusalem and the area around. There would have been uh, all kinds of uh, people from uh, 
Judea and Galilee and so on, but they also came from many different countries around where the Jews had been dispersed. And there would have been followers of all kinds in this crowd, some of them real disciples, those who really believed on the Lord Jesus. There would be others who were well-wishers. There would have been the curious, the sightseers, People just caught up by the excitement of the day. It was a deliberate and a planned act. It didn't happen by chance. It wasn't something on the spur of the moment that came to Jesus. There's the matter of the donkey. Now, that might be an example of the foresight of Jesus, but uh, many people believe that actually it was part of his plan. And those words, the Lord has need of him, was actually the password the owners would know. This uh, was Jesus himself. And uh, it all bears the marks of something being previously arranged. Sorry, my iPad went to sleep. So, as I say, they start going down the hill. It was deliberate by Jesus. The crowd remembers the miracles that they'd seen. They heard the teaching. There's never been anyone like this before. He's coming in like a king to Jerusalem. And as I say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were exuberant, probably saying more than they knew or understood. But it was not only a deliberate and planned act. It was a deliberate and planned statement by Jesus for those who could understand it. Jesus was steeped in the Old Testament. It was one of the ways that his father guided him. The Gospel of Matthew quotes the poetry of Zechariah the prophet, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this passage was understood by those that were familiar with the Old Testament. It was understood that this referred to the Messiah. Now whether the people themselves on that day understood the implications of what was happening. But Jesus himself knew. And he was making a deliberate, purposeful statement showing who he was. It wasn't by chance that he rode into Jerusalem and it wasn't by chance that he rode on a donkey. He was the long-promised Messiah coming to his people in peace. But the acclamation was by no means universal, was it? There were some Pharisees in the crowd. And they were really upset. The crowd around is shouting, waving palm leaves. Today, of course, we'd have a few banners made, but... Uh, Palm leaves did the job for them. And some of the Pharisees say to Jesus, look, this isn't right. Hmm? 
Remember, these Pharisees are the people that have been plotting to kill Jesus for months, if not longer. This isn't right. Whether they understood exactly the implications of what Jesus was doing, but they knew Psalm 118. And they knew, in their eyes, Jesus, that people shouldn't be shouting this, meaning Jesus. Tell your disciples to stop, they said. It isn't right. Jesus says, he answers them with a kind of proverbial statement. And he says, uh, if they keep quiet, the stones will shout out. In other words, what they're saying is so true and so important that if they're silenced, nature would have to shout. In other words, he's saying, they're telling the truth about me. So Jesus comes down the hill. As he does, does so, he can see over the little valley and he can see the city of Jerusalem in for him. Although he has chosen to do this, he doesn't seem to be enjoying the celebration very much. In fact, there's a profound sadness in his face. The acclamation of the people doesn't seem to be moving him. He wasn't elated by all this apparent recognition. He was a man apparently on the brink of success and acclaim who suddenly bursts into tears. Seems so incongruous. Jesus knew that in a few days' time, this same crowd and their leaders would clamor for his crucifixion. But his sorrow is not for himself. He weeps over the city. If only you knew what would really bring you peace. If only you knew, if only you understood. It was a heart-rending cry. But you can't see it. And he tells the people, and especially their leaders, of the coming downfall of the city. Roughly 40 years later it was. The downfall because they did not recognize the time of God's coming to them, God's moment for them. Why did he do it? We often tell the story, but why did he do it? Usually Jesus didn't draw attention to himself. If he healed someone, he usually said, don't tell anybody. And often he withdrew from the crowds. Just occasionally he said things to make people think and look at him, but usually he didn't want that. This seems to be something of a reversal of his usual practice. Why was it a, a public entry? Well, Jesus knew what was going to happen. He'd actually forewarned his disciples not once but three times. They didn't understand. But Jesus knew that his death was going to be of worldwide 
significance. What was going to happen to him should not be done in some obscure way. No stoning in some remote town or village, or not perhaps knocked unconscious and later revived and so on. Now the many thousands present in Jerusalem would know that he had come and they would know of his death. His crucifixion would be well known. It could not be said later that he was not crucified, that he never died. It was important for what was going to happen to be undeniable. When the apostles later stressed the resurrection, there could well have been those that wanted to deny the death of Jesus. It's interesting, there are people in our world today that want to deny the death of Jesus. But his coming to Jerusalem and his death was a very public event. But it was important that it should be public because of its significance as well, what his death was for. He was dying for the sins of the world. He was laying down his life as a ransom for many, as he said. His death was to be the means of reconciliation for the world. Our reconciliation, of course, as well. As well. And it was God's way of reconciliation for all time. And his death was to be unrepeatable. It needed to be public. Do you remember later on, some years later, when the Apostle Paul was in prison for the sake of the gospel and on his way to Rome, he was uh, held before King Agrippa that gave him an audience. And he reasoned with Agrippa about all of these things. And he said, King Agrippa, you know these things, don't you? They weren't done in a corner. They were known. Another thing about this is that Jesus was bringing things to a head. Especially if you read John's Gospel, you read now and again, his time was not yet. But just at this time, it says, he knew that his hour had come. It was Passover week. And we can't look into it now, but Passover was actually pointing to what he was coming to do. It was a most appropriate time. He knew that his work of teaching and revealing the Father was ended. And he knew all that was to befall him in the coming week. He knew the character of the crowd and the intentions of the religious leaders. And he did it deliberately. He was bringing matters to a head. What was going to happen was what he had come to do. The time is now. This was God's way for him. And this was his choice. 
And then it was a deliberate statement of who he was. Said this already, we're just saying it now for completeness. I don't need to say it again. But for all who could discern it, it was a clear statement of who he was. And John tells us the disciples didn't see it at the time it was happening, but later they saw it. It was a pointer that they could understand. And then Jesus did this because it was a last appeal and warning. It was a word to the crowd, of course. They were excited by all the miracles they'd seen. I think we would have been excited too, wouldn't we? If we'd seen what Jesus had been doing. And they saw rightly that uh, here was a man from God. It all seemed so right and wonderful, and yet, in spite of that, there was no real conviction in their hearts. Their enthusiasm was superficial. They saw him as a great healer, as a great teacher. Yes, God had to be with him, didn't he? But they didn't really understand who he was. Perhaps a lot of them at the time did think this remarkable teacher had to be the Messiah. At least they thought it for a few days. But they had no idea of what the Messiah came to do. And within a few days, they were persuaded to shout for his death. If only you knew, said Jesus to the people. Think about it. Above all, it was a public warning to the rigid religious leaders. They were the ones with the power. They were the ones that had been plotting his death and would engineer his death this week. He knew their cruelty, their self-righteousness, their stubbornness, their obstinate prejudice against the truth. He knew their pride of heart. They wanted him dead. They knew his teaching. He had said some very direct things to them. And then he had told parables to them which pointed to them and again were parables of warning. They knew his miracles. He now warned them again, clearly predicting the utter ruin of Jerusalem because they were so blind. Yet even these men Jesus was compassionate towards. He wasn't saying, just you wait, I'm going to get even. <laughs> God's going to do this, God's going to do that to you. He's saying to look, if only you knew. Think, men, think, look. So we can see this was a, a demonstration of God's compassion for rebellious people. The leaders were behaving as enemies, but Jesus still cared about them. If only you knew. Think, you leaders. Think. I don't want to be your enemy. But they didn't want to know. 
there is an ignorance which is innocent. But there is another kind of ignorance which is blameworthy, culpable. This was their ignorance. They should have known, but they didn't want to. What was it John the Baptist was saying about Jesus in those early days? They knew. Where could all the miracles of healing have come from? The stilling of the storm and the feeding of the five thousands were activities of God himself in the Old Testament. And yet here was this man, of Je- man Jesus, doing these very things. These remarkable displays of compassion and care that he showed towards the sick. The penetrating and authoritative teaching. They should have known. In fact, Jesus said to them at one time, the works that I do in my Father's name, they testify about me. They're like witnesses pointing to me. The works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I'm doing, what you see, he says, these testify that the Father has sent me. They had all kinds of evidence that they should have received him. And they didn't want to know. He said to them on one occasion, you will not come to me. Their ignorance was willful. Yet Jesus still showed compassion for them, even at this late stage. It's very often the same picture we see today. The evidence for who Jesus is And what he did is available to everybody. Yet many refuse it. They refuse to acknowledge him as the means of reconciliation with God. They don't want to know. We see it all around us. Sometimes they accuse God of uh, careless hostility and indifference. God doesn't care about people. Or they say that he he doesn't act justly. All kinds of things they accuse God of, but they will not have him as their Lord and Master. And the reason lies in their hearts, not in their minds. They will not. They don't want to. People have their own ideas about life. They don't want to consider his. The evidence is there, but they refuse to see it. And God's love and compassion is the same today. Just as Jesus held out his hands to these obstinate, rebellious leaders, So he holds out hands of compassion to men and women today that are refusing him. Jesus is revealing God's heart in this way. God is not vengeful, just waiting to zap people at the very first opportunity. It's quite the opposite. 
He is compassionate. He asks, why will you die? Why will you behave like this? And when we come to him and we begin to realize these things that make for our peace, when we come to him trustfully and in repentance, he receives us. More than that, he even welcomes us. He forgives sin. He gives the motivation and strength for a new life. It is, as it were, he takes us by the hand and he leads us to the Father. And he teaches us to call his Father, our Father, too. We need to open our heart and mind to him. Perhaps we have been careless all along and deliberate, turning away from him, but he shows compassion towards us. And if that, if that is you, if you are not one that would call yourself a Christian, his heart towards you is one of compassion. And when you turn to him, believing on him, turning away from what you know displeases him, he welcomes us. This is God's heart. And even as Christians, we need to remember this is God's heart towards us. It's possible for Christians to think of God as always looking at them and demanding more and demanding this and demanding that. God's heart towards us is one of compassion. And what we need to do is to open our hearts and mind to him. There is this well-known verse in Revelation. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. That's often used as a picture as how someone can become a Christian. They open up their lives to the Lord Jesus and they go his way. But the words are actually spoken to professing Christians to one of the churches in existence of that day. And it's an open invitation from our loving and compassionate Lord for us to open our hearts and minds to him. He will come to us. This is how he feels about us. God's compassion is wonderful. But I have to say one more thing. You notice Jesus doesn't say, if only you knew, and so on. But never mind, it doesn't matter. He didn't say that. His warning to the leaders was clear. And it's a matter of history that 40 years later his prophecy about the fall of Jerusalem literally came true. The leaders and the people suffered a dreadful fate. 
So God's compassion doesn't mean, oh, never mind, it doesn't matter. God still retains the power and the right to bring us into judgment if we refuse him. I have to say that when talking about God's compassion, else you might understand, might misunderstand. Today we can choose the path of judgment if we want, just like those leaders did. They determined that they were going to go on as they had been going. But God's compassionate call to us is to turn to him, believing, repenting, turning away from what we know to be wrong, trusting, following, experiencing his love and care in all the ups and downs of life until that day when we shall be with him forever. Let's open our hearts and minds to him.